You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So, as I was saying, welcome back and thank you indeed for being so very punctual. So we discussed this morning in the first panel how the world is in flux and we looked uh, in detail at the Belt and Road Initiative of China as we talked about geopolitical shifts taking place, we talked about new alliances being made um, and so we really do live in a world that is changing very rapidly in unpredictable ways. Uh, today, now at this session, we're going to be talking about shaping a new order. I'm not going to call it a new world order but a new order people getting together in different ways. We've seen how uh, China and the EU have come together on trade liberalization, on fighting protectionism uh, in the face of, uh, I would say, some hardened views uh, from Washington. And we've also seen at the 19th EU-China summit of an alliance, what we call the Green Alliance, being built between China and Europe. The devil is always, of course, in the detail of all these things, but at least the headline goals are, are very, very encouraging and very important. This uh, panel is rather eclectic. We have the pleasure and the privilege of having with us Cecilia Malmstrom. No introduction needed. She's the EU Commissioner for Trade. And uh, Cecilia has agreed very kindly to f say a few things in the beginning. We also have on our, channel, uh, on, our, on our panel Mr. Liu Miao. He's chairman of Lujiao Laojiao, which is a thriving uh, brewery craftsmanship and has been selected as China's intangible cultural heritage. Pleasure also to have with us Meng Hong, professor at the Renmin University of China, and she's a leading academic specializing on EU-China relations. Welcome as well. Eric Fish, journalist and author of China's Millennials, uh, American. He's written about this. He's spent quite a lot of time in China. And we wanted to bring Eric in to talk about how young people view changes taking place in China, but also in Europe, and what are the chances of them actually meeting and talking about it together. Mr. Kao Yangzheng, chairman of the Bank of China's International Research Department and former chief economist of the Bank of China. Welcome as well. Uh, Masami Nakata, uh, Assistant Secretary General of the Energy Charter Secretariat, uh, which you know is the main institution of the Energy Charter Conference. As I said, a very eclectic uh, discussion is going to take place. And last but not least, my old friend Juan Pratikol. He's now Special Advisor for International Affairs at, uh, at FIPRA, but he's also a former European Commission Director General for External Relations and an Ambassador to NATO. So thank you very much indeed, for all of you, for being being here. Uh, Commissioner Malmstrom, I'm going to vacate this wonderful lectern and ask you to come here and make your initial comments. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, ambassadors, honorable co-panelists. Thank you for inviting me to this very timely and interesting uh, topic and event. So, uh, kicking off a little bit the situation, as you know, the European Union is China's first export destination, and since last year, the European Union is China's most important destination for outward investment. The size of the EU market, without internal barriers, the transparency and openness of our economy, stability and rule-based system, make the EU an attractive partner for Chinese companies. And China is, of course, very important for the European Union, too. It is our second largest export market after the US. 
And if we look at exports alone, over 3 million jobs here in the European Union depend on sales to China. And that's probably an underestimate of the value of the relationship, given the number of European companies who depend on imports from China to make their business competitive. So these relations have become a major source of wealth, of jobs and development for both sides. We have seen millions of Chinese citizens gone out of poverty thanks to trade, and now they are consumers and tourists all over the world, and they are visiting our countries. And this is, of course, a very welcome development. Of course, the figures also show a significant trade imbalance. The EU runs a trade deficit in goods of around 170 billion euros a year. That is not a problem in itself. Part of the deficit is offset with the trade sur surplus in services and by the sales of European companies established in China. Today there is a lot of talk about trade deficits. Export and import figures are counted every time a product or part of a component crosses the border. And in today's global value chains, very complex, goods cross the border several times. So statistics do not really give a precise picture. But in the case of a big systemic trade deficit, as we do have with China, it reveals a distorted trade relationship and the existence of trade barriers and a great disparity in treatment. Chinese companies enjoy better and more open access to the European Union than our exporters and investors do in China. Discriminatory non-tariff barriers continue to be a major hurdle for Chinese products and EU producers of the Chinese market. For instance, China still keeps the European beef ban since the mad cow diseases back in the 1990s. So the first objective of a trade relationship with China is of course to push for these barriers to come down allowing our fantastic European beef to be exported, supplying bigger quantities of milk to Chinese children, operate in the telecom sector, sell trains, railway equipment, etc. A second objective is seeking out growth in new relatively untapped areas of trade, services and investment. EU-China trade in services is currently worth only one-tenth of our trading goods. So access to new services of rapid growth, where the European talent and know-how is, is best, in the new technologies, clean energy, education. Here there's a lot of untapped potential. But the limits to the freedom in internet hamper or discourage EU business, also affecting people's lives and the overall business climate. The recently adopted laws on cybersecurity, forcing relocation of data service or disclosing encryption and source codes are disproportionate and they hide possibly other objectives than security. Restrictions and censorship on the internet, tighter controls in the social network is a new digital revolution in the making. This is a human right problem but it also hampers trade. And these are some of the problems our business face today, and we are working on it. A top priority is to push for, a, uh, for progress on our comprehensive agreement on investment. This would be a turning point in our investment, in our relations. Broader market access, clear and transparent rules, and state-of-the-art investor protection on both sides. And a chance for China to deliver on its ambition to reform and liberalize the economy giving the markets a more decisive role.
give more space for market forces, private entrepreneurship, including from abroad. And this is an ambition that has been repeatedly stated since it was announced at the third plenum, 2013. And we were happy about that announcement as we welcomed very much the statement and the speech by President Xi Jinping in Davos this uh, January. He came out very strongly in support for open trade, the multilateral system against protectionism, things that are threatened today. So these announcements were very important and welcome. Now they need to be delivered and implemented. I hope that the President and his government also will walk the talk. In recent months, we have unfortunately seen reforms halted and sometimes going backwards, like the announced licensing system for imports of food and beverages or the new obligations on localization of data and services that I mentioned. Lack of reforms in the role of state-owned enterprises and massive subsidization generates industrial overcapacity in many sectors steel, aluminium, solar panels, shipbuilding. There were other important reforms announced beyond the economy. A good functioning judiciary system based on the rule of law also includes respect for lawyers, independent judges, respect for human rights. So this is a reform agenda in China that we very much support, but it still needs to get going. Conducting business in China, and some of you could witness, is difficult, and some companies uh, tell us that it's getting harder with cumbersome rules, compulsory joint ventures, vague laws, and arbitrary interpretations. And these are issues we are addressing with our Chinese counterparts. We will continue to do so, of course. And at the same time, we, in line with the President's announcement, we hope that China can work with you, with us, on the multilateral arena. China today is not the China 30 years ago. It has a role to play in multilateral trade. It has benefited hugely from the membership uh, in the WTO organization. And it can play a leading role there, defending and promoting that system together with us in the European Union. Here we can uh, fight together for our commitment to fair and fair trade and investment, preserving and protecting the international rule-based system that provides prosperity, stability and fairness. And acting together for an active outcome at the WTO Ministerial, there are issues where we could work together on fisheries, e-commerce, transparency for small and medium-sized companies, for instance. And we could together, frankly and honestly, discuss how to strengthen the WTO in the long term, ensuring that the rules are relevant uh, with today's reality and changes. The signs so far are, are mixed. We have been working very hard with China uh, to get an agreement on environmental goods uh, in December. We didn't get an agreement there, but we should resume our talks because this would be very important also for the environmental and the green agenda that our moderator referred to. Um, so our joint commitment is especially important at this time of great uncertainty. Rule-based multilateral system is under threat. The EU has always stood for openness, not protectionism, for silk roads, not great walls. And this is the same spirit that brought the European traveller and merchant Marco Polo to China more than 700 years ago. And we hope that that same spirit will drive China in the years to come. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner. So a very strong and frank and open message of the kind that this forum expects from all its uh, participants. Thank you very much indeed. So China needs to go from declarations to policies and actions, walk the talk, as you said, uh, Commissioner. And also the bigger picture, that there are uh, major challenges, 21st century challenges out there that EU and China can work together uh, and make things better, especially in this world in flux. Thank you very much indeed. Let's turn now to the panel, and I'd like uh, Mr. Kao Yongzheng to please give us some comments. From here, please, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Ping from the CDRC has mentioned now now world is in the uncertainty but uncertainty means two things one is positive the other is negative and he illustrated china is a positive uh, factor for the globalization so here i will concentrate the structural change of china's economic structures and to explore what's the chances and opportunities opportunities for cooperation between eu and china uh, you know Ever since uh, the financial crisis 2008, China realized its structure cannot be sustainable and determined to change the structures. Although the program is complicated, complicated however, the idea is clear. They are two related with each other. Number one, to change the industrial-based structure into service. Number two, to change export-oriented economy into domestic consumption. After 10 years, we see the structure is very much improved. Number one, now you can see the service sectors become the major sectors of the uh, China's economy. Takes about one, um, 50 point, 50, uh, 52% of the total GDP last year. And the consumption become the driven force of this economy. Uh, since the people's income annually along, keep along with the GDP growth rate, especially for the farmers, for the peasants, their income annually over 10% growth rate. Think about it. China has 900 million peasants. Their income substantially increased. This is a very big market. And I think these two things make new chances for the cooperation between EU and China. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the shape, the form of the trade and the investment is changing. For instance, internet. Now, now I'm a grandfather, father of my, I have a grandson. And we, my grandson, you know, they are foods buy from Europe, but from the internet, from Alibaba. So the internet uh, gives us uh, plenty of chances of cooperation of small business. And I think this is a very important idea. That's why the chairman of Alibaba, Ma Yun, in the US announced they will use this tool to enhance, to increase one million job chances for US. I think this is a new uh, channel for cooperation for trade. Besides, for investment, although now 
many Chinese enterprises come to, you, uh, come to EU to buy some you know, facilities. But remember, they are export-oriented to China. We carefully studied the data. If the enterprises is murdered with the Chinese enterprises, the export to China shares is substantially increased. So I think this is a very important signal for, uh, for the EU since according to a 12 years, five years plan, a 12, five years plan, China announced China tried their best in the, soon, in the coming years to become the largest market in the world. Consumption become a very important driven force in China. And we can see the deficit, the surplus of trade is substantially reduced. And the China Yuan deficit in current account for uh, service sectors. And the for capital account, China invests more than uh, the people invest in China, so running deficit. And that's why there is a program for one belt, one road. So for one belt, one road, just mentioned, we have explored another chances, opportunities for new occupation. For instance, EU is a very big financial market, and it invests more in the overseas. For this new project in the third countries, for instance, Pakistan, or one bed one road, there are very big projects. We need project finance. So you can cooperate in both sides. In China, we have some capacities to build the railway, to build the highway, but we can mobilize the EU's financial resources to finance this project. This is a new opportunity for, for us. And uh, Bank of China, you know, we have tried some programs. For instance, uh, we helped the Russian, uh, the biggest company, to issue the panda debt in China. And we hope also have the Hungary uh, Central Bank to issue the um, panda debt in China to finance this kind of projects. So I think this is a new opportunity for us to cooperate in the third part, third countries in the one better way road. Since time is running out, I have to stop here. Any questions? You are very much encouraged. Thank you very much. I'm sure there will be many questions to you as there will be to Commissioner Manstrom as well. So what you're saying is that China is developing fast, the consumer markets, uh, internal market is growing fast, and there is great opportunity for financing uh, in uh, European financial institutions joining this, uh, this drive. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'd like to turn to Mr. Liu Miao, if I could. Uh, so, so you're the business voice, and uh, the BRI is uh, going to be a trade promote, a trade-driven, promote trade, etc. In, uh, in uh, five minutes or so, can you tell us what kinds of opportunities uh, that you are uh, looking at when you look at uh, the EU and you look at the BRI? Thank you. Dear moderator Sada, and also I'm very delighted, privileged to be here as a representative of the Chinese business to attend the seventh EU China forum. 
I would like to offer another angle or perspective to look at uh, the uh, One by One Road initiative and also the um, picking up the speed of constructing the uh, China-EU FT free trade zone. And uh, in the previous session, some speakers have mentioned, uh, for example, pragmatic promotion of the uh, BRI, as well as the uh, EU-China free trade zone. As a Chinese uh, business representative, I would like to um, express our um, willingness to participate in the uh, BRI because we benefited from it and we also practiced, we are practitioners of the BRI. We hope that uh, there could be a pragmatic and also speeding up uh, an acceleration of the progression of the BRI. BRI has been proposed for three years by the President Xi, and you probably can witness that uh, over the three years, the um, BRI has been uh, promoted along this uh, route, and also the enthusiasm has been growing. And regardless of, well, for example, we have recently the uh, BRI forum, and also the various uh, forums and events taking place uh, along the uh, BRI countries. I think that uh, we should uh, join concerted efforts. As uh, the, one of the speakers in the previous session mentioned in the Chinese, uh, we unite our heart, then we can move the Thai mountain. And uh, no matter who proposes a BRI, which country proposes a BRI, as long as it's conducive to societal progress, economic development, and uh, business entities, as well as uh, meet the needs of the consumers. It complies with the market uh, principles. It points at the right uh, direction. I believe this is a good thing to be promoted. And we have to walk the talk instead of uh, only do the talking. And uh, I believe that there can be lots of barriers and also lots of um, uh, obstacles. But we have to uh, um, solve these uh, problems while we uh, implement uh, the initiative. And I believe this is conducive to the global economic development and will be beneficial to all. And the second point I would uh, like to say that uh, from a business perspective, especially a company like a traditional Chinese liquor company like Luzhou Laojiao, and uh, we are very eager to go global to be integrated into the global economy. And uh, what we need is uh, liberalize the trade, not a protected trade. And I think in this process, if uh, in this uh, liberalized trade, we can also have trade facilitation. And then uh, we can have a better understanding of each other's culture, history, customs of the market. And we can also enhance our competitiveness from the business entities perspective and also improve the competitiveness of each other's market and also to produce markets which can better meet the needs of consumers. Like last night, you probably have taste, you have tasted 
the uh, traditional Chinese uh, liquor. And uh, we have a Chinese uh, cocktail with the uh, basic uh, alcohol uh, from the Chinese liquor. And I can see lots of enthusiasm in the reception last night and apparently very good uh, impression. And also, um, from the same principle, I believe that uh, this cooperation, whether it's uh, whiskey or brandy, cognac, whatever it is, and uh, it would uh, improve the uh, competitiveness of the product and also improve the competitiveness of the market. Secondly, when the trade is liberalized, and then uh, among the businesses of different countries, let me put it more frankly, we can reduce the operation cost in the liberalized trade framework and also to improve the efficiency of our resources and develop markets. And simply saying, as um, Mr. Chi mentioned, there are 60 countries along the BRI, and there are developed countries, developing countries, um, and the um, less developed countries. And with the uh, Chinese companies, uh, we and Chinese companies could join forces with the European countries. And uh, then uh, these, um, our we can set up joint ventures to go to the third country. And then uh, we can enjoy the benefits of our cooperation from business angle. Much. So a great appeal for free trade, liberalization, and to drink uh, more of your wonderful uh, beverage. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's, let's, turn now to, let's turn now to the energy sector, uh, because that's one of the things that was also highlighted at the EU-China summit that was held recently. And I wanted to ask you uh, from the Energy Charter Secretariat, Masami-san, what you see as the potential for further cooperation uh, on, in areas like, we, we, we talked about it, right, this morning, green growth, uh, sustainability, renewables, etc. Flows yours, five minutes. All right, um, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting International Energy Charter uh, to be here. Um, um, actually, uh, Secretary General Dr. Rusnak was supposed to come here. And, uh, but I have to apologize for that, uh, for not coming here. He's actually in, in Beijing uh, attending the uh, Global Forum on Energy Security and also uh, meeting with uh, our counterparts in China, including uh, National Energy Administration. And uh, I am by no means an expert of EU or China or EU energy, uh, sorry, EU uh, China relationship, but I've been working in the energy field quite some time, so I will really uh, try to um, talk from uh, energy side yes. and how this energy charter or, uh, can contribute to the climate change mitigation and so on. Um, for those uh, uh, who are not familiar with the energy charter treaty, uh, energy charter treaty is uh, uh, existing uh, multilateral intergovernmental uh, framework agreement um, for energy cooperation. So the Charter Treaty, Energy Charter Treaty, provide uh, a minimum set of uh, principles and rules for energy uh, cooperation and to uh, realize open, um, transparent, non-discriminatory uh, energy market. So you can hear these really keywords are there, like a transparency, a multi, uh, multilateral. Um, um, 
open market and the non-discriminatory um, business and investment. So it is already here and the in, uh, existing as an existing uh, treaty. And China is the member. Uh, sorry, China is the observer, and the EU is a member. And uh, we have uh, 53 uh, member states, uh, including all those the countries along the Belt and Road uh, region, all those Central Asian countries. And also uh, we have observers uh, from um, uh, Middle Eastern countries like Iran, Iraq, and Pakistan. And also we recently added uh, several African countries, uh, Nigeria, and um, Kenya, so on. So we are actually expanding. And uh, it's a very good uh, uh, platform, multilateral platform for energy talk. And for the climate change, um, maybe I can give you the one example of how we are working on it. Um, I recently came back from Mongolia uh, from the steering committee uh, meeting uh, organized by Asian Development Bank. And uh, this is uh, uh, the project for uh, Northeast Asia power system interconnection. Uh, uh, and the, the consultant uh, who was awarded by ADB to uh, develop the strategy for this project is uh, ED, uh, EDF, uh, Electricité de France. And uh, so I was wondering why the European EU institution is uh, awarded to uh, develop the strategy. The, the reason behind it is um, the project is trying to learn the lesson learned from Europe's uh, the internal the, uh, electricity market integration. And uh, so that is the expectation from this, the, uh, the EU uh, organization. And then also the interesting thing is that this interconnection um, thought, interconnection idea, uh, this has been uh, floating around for uh, more than two decades. So actually I attended the, some of uh, in the grid interconnection uh, meeting in, um, in Asia quite like, uh, more than 10 years ago. And that time, drivers behind the integration, the power uh, uh, system integration, is the, the stabilized the regional political, uh, political uh, situation and uh, secure the energy security in Northeast Asian countries because of uh, North South Korea and uh, there's an issue. And there was no mention about climate change. But this time, when I attended the meeting, the Interesting thing is that the, the driver, drivers behind this project is climate change. And using the Mongolia's uh, renewable energy source and to uh, create the low carbon electricity market in the region, including um, China, Japan, South North Korea, and Russia. And then for that purpose, um, Energy Charter was sort of requested to be there because mm -hmm. as a multilateral um, um, the platform, right. the dialogue. Right. So a real change uh, in China's priorities as well in terms of renewables, climate change-driven uh, issue uh, projects, and working closely with Europe on, on those questions as well. Yes. Okay, now we're going to do uh, different things where we've done the energy side. Let's turn to Meng Hong. And Meng Hong, uh, we have mentioned it only briefly, uh, Brexit. But China has been investing quite a bit in, 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 the, in Britain. And so I was wondering from your uh, perspective, how does that in, uh, change the current 
discussions between Europe and China. How disruptive is Brexit for you? Sorry for the one uh, second uh, display because I'm listening to the uh, interpretation and uh, I'm very honored and privileged uh, to be invited here to discuss the uh, China-EU development uh, potentials, including when the Brexit uh, um, takes place, what kind of impact it will bring to the China-EU relationship. After arriving in uh, Belgium yesterday, I went to the uh, Grand Plaza and um, I saw the uh, monuments uh, um, erected there after the First World War as well as uh, um, monuments uh, erected after the Second World War. What I can see is that uh, Belgium is more a neutral state. However, after the um, uh, second two world wars, uh, Belgium also has uh, played a very vital role in the uh, integration of EU. I'm very privileged to be here to participate in the EU-China forum uh, taking place uh, in um, Belgium. And for the Brexit, in the uh, process of uh, EU integration, I think what we can affirm is that uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, uh, Italy, Germany, these uh, six uh, uh, core countries are the um, main drivers of uh, EU integration. E um, Britain or UK joined uh, only later, and there's also up and downs after UK's uh, joining of the uh, EU. And uh, the uh, two Nordic countries and uh, several other countries are not part of the EU yet. So I personally feel that uh, these um, diversified development of EU also helps uh, or actually poses a challenge to the further integration of uh, the uh, um, EU integration. For example, after the uh, further expansion of EU in 2004, there are three crises. One is the Euro crisis, and uh, second is the uh, Ukraine crisis. Thirdly is the refugee crisis, and then um, two other new crises being the Brexit and also the um, EU um, or the uh, transatlantic uh, relationship being readjusted. And as to uh, China's relationship with the UK or China's relationship with uh, Switzerland, from what I can see is that uh, as early, if we go back to the FTA between China and uh, Switzerland and uh, also President Xi visiting, uh, when visiting EU countries, normally it's uh, EU, Germany, Switzerland, but uh, um, President Xi visited uh, UK once solely, and uh, that also injected a new vitality into the uh, UK-China relationship. But I think, uh, of course, uh, this is uh, our uh, one of the options that we have uh, adopted in the diversified uh, diplomatic uh, relationships um, um, promotion. And I think one key point I would like to mention here is that it is necessary for China and the EU to have this friendly relationship and cooperation for EU integration. No matter where the what is the future of EU integration or the future of the BRI, what kind of obstacles we might encounter in promoting BRI, the final objective as the um, mentioned uh, by the uh, Ambassador Schweizgut, and then uh, that is um, BRI 
and also EU integration. Actually, there are two innovative uh, initiatives. And uh, EU integration makes sure that the EU could uh, become a peace, uh, a peaceful block. And also, BRI would also make it possible that uh, these uh, Asian and Eurasian area could also have a peaceful uh, environment for development. And the second point I would like to make is that uh, yesterday I participated in the uh, roundtable discussion, and uh, also thanks uh, Shada for having all the experts, uh, scholars from very different uh, backgrounds. And uh, from their um, remarks, uh, I have uh, heard and also seen some very sharp views, which can be um, a barrier to the EU-China for their cooperation. Some views are very different. However, differences are exactly where we complement each other. And I believe the gaps that we have seen can be manifested in some numbers. China started opening up in 1978. And in 2001, we joined WTO. Around the same time, the EU was introduced. So during this process, we can see that Although China was just starting, actually EU had entered already a post-industrialization era. So there's a tremendous gap that exists between the development of China uh, and the EU. But of course, we also need to look at the goals that uh, China and EU have. But of course, I know I don't have that much time now, so we can explore this at a later stage. Thank you. Indeed, we will. Thank you very much. Uh for, for that uh, cl clarification, but then as far as I understood what you were saying, so Brexit is not a major obstacle. It's a, it's a hiccup in a relationship, but your focus on the EU stays strong um, is what you're basically saying, I think, right? Yes, okay. So let's, let's move on to Eric Fish. So Eric, we talk a lot about young people, and we talk about how young people have the power to change the world and are changing the world. We've seen it in many places recently. From your uh, perspective, as somebody who's written about the Chinese millennials, but also is an um, your, um, American millennial, talks to European millennials, if, are, are, we, are we wrong in saying there's such power there? Is it being deployed in the right way? Yeah, so thanks for pointing out that I'm American. I have to say that uh, it's been interesting being the only American speaking at this conference. I've gotten uh, asked to answer for a lot of things. So uh, <laughs> let me take this opportunity to apologize uh, for my country, <laughs> uh, especially to the people in these room, this room. I know we've uh, been the source of a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so we're all hoping it ends soon. Uh, but yeah, the country's no. great. The country's not a problem. <laughs> the country's yeah, but no, not at the moment. But um, yeah, the young people, though, I think are a counterforce uh, to a lot of the very unfortunate things that we're seeing right now in the world. And uh, I was really interested when I went to China and started meeting young people. I moved there when I was 22, and it really seemed that there was starting to be this sort of confluence of international culture and norms and beliefs. And there was one stat that really interested me from a couple of years ago. 74% of Chinese under 35 say, I have more in common with people my age in other countries than I do older people in my own country. Uh, so there really is, I think, starting to be um, a lot of confluence in how young people uh, act, uh, interact with the world. And I think if you look at what uh, young people in China are grappling with, uh, a lot of the issues are very similar to what I see in America and what you probably see in Europe. 
uh, wealth inequality is becoming a, a very important issue for young people in China. There's a lot of college graduates. There's 8 million new college graduates this year, and the jobs just aren't there for them. Um, now in Beijing, migrant laborers make more than a new college graduate does. Uh, so you have people with very high expectations entering the workforce, and the reality is just not there to accommodate them. Uh, and China has some very unique issues, too. Young people are grappling with an aging population uh, that young people are going to be expected to take care of, a gender imbalance. You have 20 million uh, more marriage-age men than women uh, right now, and that's putting a lot of pressure on the marriage market. Uh, but there are a lot of very positive things, and I think the interesting thing about uh, China now, you have a generation that came of age after economic reforms started and the economy really started taking off in China. So the parents' generation, uh, the older generation, I think, in China was kind of content with economic growth, but now you have a generation coming of age that sort of is taking that for granted and looking at more abstract, uh, more lofty things, wanting more than just a, a good paycheck, caring about environmental issues, social issues, wanting some sort of spiritual satisfaction uh, and not just economic satisfaction. And again, you see young people, like most of the world, much more liberal than their elders. You have a generation now that grew up uh, on Hollywood movies and access to all sorts of foreign information with the Internet. Um, so uh, one other promising trend I see uh, across the board in different countries, uh, Chinese youth, I think, are becoming much less nationalistic uh, year by year. Uh, one survey that caught my eye again, in China, people over 50 years old have a 35% approval rating of the United States. Uh, if you get to under 35 years old, that bumps up to 60%. I haven't seen the equivalent numbers for Europe, but I've got to think it's pretty similar. So you see young people becoming more internationally oriented and more keen uh, to work together. And if you look at some of the other nationalistic movements around the world, Brexit, Trump, young people overwhelmingly in all these cases rejected the nationalistic protectionist uh, standpoint. So I think that's a really big point of optimism for the future. Um, so a couple of things stand in the way, though. Um, China, I think, through young people, the biggest thing standing in the way is their parents, quite honestly, <laughs> uh, where you have very different values, where you have a lot of young people wanting to do something meaningful with their life, wanting to get into environmentalism, NGOs. I interviewed a lot of young people who wanted to do something like that, but their parents say, uh, that's nice of you, but I would like you to get a good, stable job that's going to make a lot of money. I want you to get married and have a baby as quickly as possible. And from the parents' perspective, that's totally understandable. They grew up in a different world uh, where uh, the future was very uncertain, so they want a sort of stability for their kids. So that's a big hurdle. Uh, there are other issues. Uh, political, it's very hard. It's getting harder for civil society in China right now. Uh, there's a tough new NGO law that especially affected uh, foreign NGOs that's kind of limiting what people are able to do. Uh, but one other positive sign, I'm, I'm sure we mentioned earlier about all the Chinese students studying abroad. There's about a million Chinese students around the world, the lion's share of them being in Europe, North America, and Australia. Uh, so that's, I think, a very promising sign, but also um, there are some concerns that I think need to be addressed for the full benefits of that to be realized. Uh, I think the growth in Chinese students abroad has happened so quickly that a lot of schools have been unprepared uh, to deal with them, and now you have schools, some of them with thousands of Chinese students, where they can kind of retreat into their own little bubbles, and uh, a lot of schools sort of see Chinese students as cash cows uh, to make up for budget shortfalls. So... Um, I think schools could do better integrating them, and a lot of students nowadays uh, 
that come unprepared leave disliking the country that they came to more than when uh, they came in the first place. So I think these are things that can be worked on, uh, but I do think it's a very promising generation in Europe and China to move forward um, a lot of the, the issues that affect both sides. Thank you, Eric. So uh, how is the book selling well, right? Your, your book's doing good. <laughs> yeah, <right>? it is. <laughs> and, and your future book? What's that? The future book, the book you're writing now? Oh, I'm writing about Chinese students in American universities. Oh. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll get you back, get your insights. So, Juan Prat, Ambassador Juan, <laughs> you've been listening since the morning, and I've left you to the end for a reason, which is what I want you to sort of comment on all the different things you've heard in this panel about trade, about energy, about Brexit. I mean, you have this global overview, and you know China well, but you know Europe very well. Five minutes. Yes, you can. <laughs> Does it work? Yes. Well, first of all, uh, since I am the last one and I am the senior member of this panel and the former <laughs> panel too, I would like to congratulate the uh, Friends of Europe for having included the youth here with us. I think it is so important. Our world, our 21st century world, belongs to the young. Uh, and uh, I wish that we have more and more young politicians uh, here in China, everywhere, because this is the only way to look to the, to the real future, not for the tomorrow. Huh? Besides, somebody said, today is the tomorrow we were looking for yesterday. So we are already in the 21st century, but many of us don't realize it. Now, this being said, uh, I would like to, to say one thing that I didn't hear here, because I heard all the time that China was a rising power. I don't agree with that. China is not a rising power. China is a returning power. Because China has been a power for centuries. And for centuries, China has been the most important economic uh, uh, power in the world and the most uh, populous trading area in the world. And not so far away. In 1820, the GDP of China was higher than the GDP of uh, Europe, Western, Eastern, and Russia altogether. So really, I think that, and it amounted to the 80% of the GDP in the world. Therefore, when we talk about relations with China, we have always to have in mind, not only that there are young Chinese now, but it is an old, old civilization that is returning, coming back with ideas. And in this increasingly contradictory reality that we are living today, there are lots of disruptions. Today, I like very much somebody talking about disruptions, and there are two kinds of disruptions. It was said political but also technological. And the political disruption being important, because it brings China to the, to the first stage, the technological is even more important, but it, we also find China at the first stage there, because the technological disruption today is uh, the one of digitalization. And I can tell you, when I go to China, I'm always so surprised about how much more advanced than us they are. I started, I am, I am old already, uh, for uh, normal standards, but I tried to get involved in the new digital world. And uh, I was using, I was using uh, usually the WhatsApp. Now I am using WeChat. Yeah. WeChat is much more advanced than WhatsApp, and this is, <laughs> and this is a Chinese uh, system. You know. So really, uh, let's, be, let's be very careful about all that. Now, this being said, uh, I don't know, from what have I heard, I, I, I think, do we regard each other as competitors still or as partners? But if we have also said that globalization brings more interdependence, it is clear that in a global world we must all be partners. 
especially when we're talking about the environment, for example, which has been talked about. There, we are absolutely sure partners. We have not only to save the world, but to save humankind. This is so fundamental. That's why it is incredible that you can have a great power like the United States having a president who denies that. This really, please send this message back if you can do something about it. Now, uh, indeed, we have to be partners, but there is a problem. We, want to, we have to institutionalize, in a way or another, our partnership, but this is not easy. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, free trade or uh, uh, an agreement about investments and so on, but the commissioner uh, will, uh, will uh, be in agreement with me that it is something, from the European point of view, very difficult to achieve with any country. We've seen that now with Canada. You know, the CETA is an agreement that's a fantastic agreement with a country that is very close to Europe and there should not be any problems. And yet, there have been problems. We will finally uh, ratify it, I am sure, because it's good for everybody. But our Chinese friends should know that we have difficulties in dealing with this kind of agreements because of many sociological and political reasons, but there it is. So now I would, I would think that maybe we should uh, look at things in another way. Since it is not easy to have agreements and an institutionalized uh, uh, system, why don't uh, we uh, see things more in the economic way, not in the political one? In the political sense, it is clear that we have to have relations Europe-China. But in the economic one, I've been in China very often. By the way, I have a son who lives there, so I know a lot about the youth in China too, and he has been there already for 12 years, so he's not so young anymore. <laughs> but we, we, we should, uh, we should uh, in this fast-reacting world, where I don't distinguish between great uh, countries and small countries, or uh, rich countries and poor countries, but on fast-reacting countries and slow-reacting countries. And we in Europe, the price we pay to have this European Union makes us be very slow reacting. So we should have to accelerate a little bit our reactions in our relations with China. But in our relations, economic relations with China, instead of talking China-Europe, I think we have to talk about the regions, the regions of China, the cities of China, and also the regions and the cities of Europe. I've been participating, uh, invited by the European Commission to a program which is World Cities, and where we have the regions and the cities of Europe and China being selected, uh, participating in different, in different projects. And I see the business that come with the cities. Cities, cities bring business with them. And this is an, an application of the subsidiarity principle that President Delors launched when I was in the Commission. What you can do from the bottom, don't try to do it from the top. It will be more efficient. So today, you, you should know that there are lots, lots of, of, uh, of programs and projects going on very successfully between uh, cities of China and Europe and where business uh, produce very good results. I won't go further than that, but that was what I wanted to add to what I have been hearing. Thank you very much. Thank you for bringing in the cities and the regions and the provinces. Very good indeed. So we've come to the end of the first uh, round of interventions. I'd really like to take questions from you at the moment. Uh, Commissioner Malmstrom has also talked about certain things that I think we need to pursue a bit further, given what, we said in the, what was said in the earlier panel discussion as well. So I already have uh, a hand there. Bogdan is putting up his hand, and I'm happy to take questions uh, for, for about three three questions at least. So, um, yes, Bogdan, go ahead. Please introduce yourself and... Thank you. Uh, my name is Bogdan Guralczyk from Warsaw, Warsaw University. 
talking uh, about the title of our panel, it was the shaping of the new world, our new world order. Uh, as a teacher at the university, I'm teaching the global challenges, about the global challenges. And this is, to my mind, a missing link in our debates and discussion today. And yesterday, actually the same. Uh, due to the fact that during this panel, one of the global challenges was mentioned, which is the climate change, let me ask uh, some questions and just a short elaboration. When we are talking about the climate change, we are not using the buzzwords, we are using two, uh, two numbers, if I may say so. One is two, centigrade, uh, two degrees centigrade, and the other one is 450 ppm, particle per million. Now, the climate uh, is, uh, temperature is rising, and the 2%, 2 degrees when it is rising, we, we will have unpredictability. Not American style, not Trump card unpredictability, climate change unpredictability. And now what has happened? At the end of 1990s... Bogdan, you really have yeah, to I be know, brief. I, uh, very short. Uh, at the end of 1990s, it was one uh, degree centigrade. Now it's 1.5. The other one, at the end of the previous industrial revolution, it was uh, 390. Now it's 407. Yeah. So my questions are following. Why we are not discussing the problem of human and nature vis-a-vis uh, -vis the new investment projects. This is a vision. Right. One belt, one road is geostrategic project and vision. And here is no difference between East and West, Chinese or Europeans. Where are we going and why we are not dealing with that? And second, after the implementation of the one belt, one road, what kind of order can we expect? Thank you. Thank you very much. So questions linked to what was said yesterday and this morning as well. David Fouquet, please. Just put your hand up. Yes, and please, David, keep it brief. Yes, Nicola. Yes, at the risk of uh, perhaps sounding negative or melodramatic like my colleague, I would like to uh, point out that uh, something that doesn't need to be pointed out, that the belts and the roads and the pipelines and the cyber connections go through some very unstable um, regions of tension, of hostility, and even conflict. Um, in Myanmar, it goes through a, a, a war zone. In Pakistan, I think uh, the government there has uh, indicated it will take something right. like 20,000 security personnel yeah. uh, in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean. Right. I think that's a major factor that needs to be examined, not only examined, but uh, mm. planned for. Right. Thank you. Right. Okay. And Nicola Casarini had a question. Yes. And Dr. Schifferlin. Very brief, please. Yes. <clears throat> 
Thank you. Thank you, Shada. Uh, Nicola Casarini from the Instituto Affari Internazionali in Rome. Um, just a brief question to the Commissioner. I come from Italy and you mentioned uh, very clearly what are the issues and the problems when it comes to trade and investment with China. And I can tell you in Italy this debate is very much alive. But I wanted to just bring another issue. When we talk about the trade and investment, we sometimes overlook the monetary dimension. It is true that in Europe we have monetary authorities in Frankfurt. It is the European Central Bank, which is responsible for the Eurozone. But I wonder whether this growing interaction between the Europeans and the Chinese on monetary issues could actually help solve some of the issues that we currently have on trade and investment. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you for that. And last question from Dr. Shifulin. Uh, Dr. Shifulin will speak in Chinese. I would like to raise a question for Commissioner Malmstrom. I heard a lot of the problems outlined in your, in your presentation about China-EU trade. And indeed, we are operating against the backdrop of uncertainty. But are there new solutions to the problems that we face? For example, overcapacity. Can we try to resolve the problem of overcapacity through the third market along the route of One Bell, One Road? And a comprehensive investment agreement, does that include also services? If it includes services, is it possible to include, to actually join a investment agreement with a services agreement. Is that possible? I would like to know whether or not, what your views on this are. Thank you. In the previous uh, session, uh, there was some uh, talk also of uh, using the Belt and Road to construct uh, free trade zones across the road, across the Belt. Uh, a, a heady talk of a Eurasian FTA, for instance. Um, and also, one of the uh, participants said that, you know, Europe should be deploying the same amount of energy in discussing the Belt and Road and trade with China, uh, investments with China, as it has on the TTIP negotiations, which at the moment you know, may or may not be revived. So I was wondering, uh, I know you have to leave uh, promptly uh, at one, but if you would like to first answer the questions from the participants and some of my queries as well. Yes, thank you. I think many of the things that have been discussed here on the Belt uh, road is, is, of course, extremely exciting and promising for, for, for the future. But as the, the professor said, th there are also certain risks around this, so we should uh, hurry slowly. Uh, and a free trade agreement across all these uh, countries, uh, it's a nice thought, but it has to be realistic. It will not be for tomorrow. Uh, a free trade agreement cannot just be, be talked. It has to be negotiated. There are certain conditions. There, in the European Union, you need to have a mandate. You need to involve the member states, the European Parliament, uh, and, and so on. So, so uh, I think we need to be realistic about this. I would love to have uh, increased trade between uh, China and, uh, and our partners. We do trade, as I said, uh, a lot, but, but there are lots of hurdles that could be, be, uh, be, be eliminated. We are trying now to focus on the investment agreement, which is purely limited to investment, to 
create a level playing field, uh, certain rules, certain um, commitments, transparency, uh, agreements that, that we will um, have on both the sides in order to, for, to create this better level playing field. Once that is done, I think we could start discussing a free trade agreement, but we need to do things in, in that order. Uh, so so um, that, 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 that will be the focus for, for, for the meantime. And it has proven to be quite difficult to advance in the investment agreement. I think that is a pity because we could send a very powerful signal to the world around us that, that even if we have our differences, EU and China, we are partners and not to talk about um, the climate where we are clear partners, of course, in the climate agreement. We are partners and we are willing to try to overcome some of these differences by facilitating trade and, and creating a better level playing field. Overcapacity is discussed with China. The European Union is, of course, smaller, but we have gone through extremely painful transformation in overcapacity in steel and other sectors in our past. So we know how difficult it is, the social price that you have to pay. We have some important lessons we could, uh, we could share where we can talk about this. But for the moment, this is a problem that, that is affecting European and other countries' uh, jobs and, and citizens uh, uh, as well. Uh, on the... Um, uh, so, so yes, we do think, need, to, of course, to think visionary, and, and I, I subscribe to many of these visions, but we shouldn't create unrealistic expectations as well, because creating a, a, a huge free trade agreement along this, it's a beautiful vision, I share that, but that is not feasible uh, on the long, long run. On the monetary issues that you asked, uh, sir, I think we, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understood your question, maybe we can, uh, we, we can do that in, in, in the break. Um, I'm not sure, actually, that that would facilitate, for, for, frankly. Uh, Commissioner, I do have one follow-up, and it's also something, I mean, we have focused a lot on uh, delivery and, and results on the Chinese market, but recently we had a discussion at the EU summit, which uh, frightened quite a lot of people around the world when there was talk about vetting of investments coming from abroad. I know for the moment there is no decision, but the headlines across the world did, did talk about the EU flirting with protectionism. Clarify it for us, please. Well, the EU is 28 countries and 28 heads of state who have been meeting, and of course they all have uh, ideas and their constituencies. Uh, I think there is a, 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 there's no willingness to, to fight protectionism with protectionism. That is not a good way forward. Uh, but there is concerns that the European Union is the most open market in the world, and we welcome investment and we welcome trade here, but there are concerns that we cannot buy ports or airports or, or um, train stations or, or critical infrastructure in other countries, as, for instance, China can do in the European Union. So this is, of course, something where, where some countries feel that, that there needs to be more more uh, balance, more reciprocity on this. And this is discussed. There are lots of different nuances to this, not easy questions, no decisions, as you, as you said. But I think it is perfectly natural that it has been discussed. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, I was wondering, Mr. Yuan Zheng, would you like to come in on some of the issues that were raised, including about uh, the, the climate change talks? Okay. 
just now we uh, have heard uh, from the uh, commissioner these uh, overcapacity, and also Mr. Merchant. And I would like to comment on the green development and also on the uh, overcapacity. We don't deny that there is uh, overcapacity in some of the uh, um, basic uh, industries. Uh, for example, steel sector in China. This is also a key discussion point uh, between China and EU. But from another angle, what is uh, overcapacity? If the when the cost is the lowest, that doesn't mean that it would lead to overcapacity. We also have calculated that for the steel sector in China, the raw iron is the cost is higher than the average cost of the world. But the other steel, for example, plates and hot rolled cold rolls, the cost is lower than the world average. And also, if you look at the Chinese steel plants, for example, um, Bao steel and Thai steel, their um, cost is also well controlled. And also, I understand that there is also social pricing, as the commissioner mentioned, if we have to tackle the overcapacity. But I think we have to look at the comparative advantage of uh, manufacturing. Otherwise, there's no reason why 60% of the steel protection is concentrated in China. That only means that uh, there's comparative advantage of uh, Chinese uh, manufacturing. And uh, for the uh, free trade or the anti-dumping and uh, dumping discussions, uh, we have to face to the fact. And why China have to tackle and uh, reduce this uh, capacity or overcapacity. And uh, we believe that there's economically not viable to keep it up. And secondly, environmentally, it's not viable to keep it up. And uh, there would uh, um, have implications on the environmental degradation. And uh, last year, Chinese uh, government have announced the plan to um, reduce uh, 65 million tons of steel. And this year will be 50 million tons of steel reduced. And uh, there's um, also a large number of steel plants will to exit it from the market. Considering the social pricing in China, uh, because uh, there's uh, also a large number of laid off workers from the steel sector. However, for the goal of um, environmental viability and environmental sustainability, and especially if you've been to Beijing, you will see these uh, smog condition in Beijing is also quite serious. China has uh, issued uh, the most uh, stringent environmental protection policies and uh, measures in the world uh, and with a very stringent um, uh, penalty measures. And uh, um, all these measures aim to solve the um, uh, air pollution issues and it's highly closely related to these uh, um, manufacturing and capacity issue. And China also joined the Paris Agreement and also the environmental consideration or concern of the environmental protection actually is the biggest item when considering and evaluating the performance officials. And China also advocated for green development. As for the 13th five-year plan development and uh, the uh, green development is um, heightened to the uh, second uh, um, biggest uh, objective. And uh, all these uh, loans to be granted a loan from the Chinese banks, um, they also have to pass the environmental assessment. And uh, China also has issued uh, green um, bonds in uh, London. And uh, all the criteria as well as the financing standards or criteria are also closely linked to the CO2 emission and also pollution emissions. And I think these efforts is undertaking. And on clean energy, as you know, that the Chinese clean energy is the largest 
um, although um, in the energy mix, uh, the fossil fuels still account for quite a big percentage. However, China also step up the effort of the renewable energy development. If we touch also on the issue of security that uh, was raised for the BR, for the BRI, very, very briefly. Yeah, security. Security. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. Actually, for the uh, BRI, the uh, idea for Chinese is very simple. What is security? Security is the uh, human development. As long as uh, people prosper, because poverty is the uh, warm bed, hotbed for the uh, chaos. And uh, as long as the people's livelihood could be improved and uh, then uh, there's uh, um, peaceful development and prosperity. And for example, before the Chinese open up a policy, a third of Chinese population facing the starvation changed. And after next, uh, I should say, you know, every 10 years is a, a conjuncture. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. What we are discussing now are still what happened uh, 10 years ago, WTO accession. And uh, however, Eric Fish has proposed a very good uh, um, um, point. And every 10 years, there is a huge development in China. As we mentioned, that agriculture population, rural population, has enjoyed the uh, fastest uh, income growth. And then uh, as latest, um, the uh, fastest uh, growing um, sector in China is the uh, home redecoration or home renovation. For example, IKEA benefited also from decorating farmers' uh, households. And uh, Nordic countries, for example, Volvo, nearly a bankrupt uh, uh, company in Europe. However, after being acquired by a Chinese company, they also enjoyed a steady growth of the sales in China of Volvo passenger cars. So every 10 years, we need to review what are the new opportunities that uh, we have in front of us. And uh, BRI, as, a, as well as the transformation and the transitioning China is in right now, offers a great opportunity. And uh, finally, I would also like to say that, uh, indeed, uh, as bankers, we find China's millennials are quite powerful. Be mindful of a figure. Last year, 95% of the loans are to individuals. And especially for millennials, 40%, millennials already account for 40% of the auto loans. And this is, um, speaks of the uh, consumption structure change in China. Thank you very much indeed. So now I have uh, six minutes for the remaining uh, panelists. Uh, I just want to very quickly, if you have something to point out to do come in, but I want to start with you, Eric. So uh, Mr. Yang Zhang talked about climate change and uh, I was just wondering from your point of view, how deep is the young people's concerns and commitments to, to these issues uh, in China? Um, I would say it's still overall less than in the West. Um, but I think it's definitely moving in that direction. There's not, I mean, when I compare to the U.S., there's not climate denial. I think that's pretty, <laughs> there's not really a sense of climate denial within China at all. It's uh, just a matter of uh, what should be done about it, to what extent. Um, and I think engagement among young people in this issue specifically and a lot of other social issues uh, is still, when you compare to the developed West, uh, a bit less, but I think it's very quickly moving in that direction where you have 
a new middle class of socially conscious young people that really do uh, want to make the world a better place. And especially uh, in a lot of China, you do see these environmental issues very up close. It's not a distant, abstract issue. So uh, yeah. I think um, a lot of people are, and, and you see the past 10 years or so, you, there have been some very large-scale environmental protests in China against uh, various issues. So I think youth really are uh, starting to find their voice on this. Uh, it's just a matter of how that uh, how that voice will be will be heard if it will be heard if that translates into political action if they're allowed to um, raise their voice. So, okay, thank you, Eric. So, Masami-san, you wanted to come in very quickly, please. Oh, thank you. Um, the our organization is not dealing with the political security, but we are dealing with the legal risk of security and also regulatory risk. And then, uh, twenty fifteen. Oh, sorry, nine, oh, wait, 2015, yes. Uh, China, <laughs> 2015, China signed the uh, Energy Charter. And the International Energy Charter is just a political declaration, but it is to show the political willingness to create the transparent and uh, a stable uh, energy market. And uh, recently, those African countries also signed the International Energy Charter because to attract the foreign investment. Uh, this meeting in Mongolia I attended. Yeah. Um, the Mongolia is a member of Energy Charter Treaty. It's a big benefit because that is to show, the, show that uh, you can come and then to invest. I mean, we are stable. And uh, the project like interconnection, uh, um, the uh, grid interconnection, it needs the huge uh, foreign investment. You have to attract the investment. Right. And uh, for that purpose, um, uh, actually, at the EU, it's a member, and then also China, it's an observer, that really uh, uh, helped the, this, um, right. the environment. Just one uh, quick, um, the yesterday, because I was uh, looking at the EU-China uh, relation using the internet, because I'm not an expert, so I'm very nervous, but I'm what am I going to talk? And then I came across this um, uh, article, um, EU-China Roadmap on Energy Cooperation. Uh, this document was signed last year in June and, uh, between the EU and the National Energy Administration. And the document includes the statement, say, cooperate within the framework of the Energy Charter Treaty. Yeah. So this is really like an existing tool that you can use. Right. Juan, uh, would you like to come in very, very briefly? I'm sorry, I have to, we're running out of time, so we really do have to give the interpreters a break yeah. as well. Yeah, very, very briefly. Uh, after all what I have heard during the, the, the whole day today here, the morning and now, my, my thought is the initiative of President Xi Jinping, uh, Itailu, and uh, whatever you call it uh, in English because there are different names, is a very important uh, Chinese initiative, which represents to me at the moment where we have abandoned the declarations of independence. We are not at a, in a world of declarations of independence. We must have declarations of interdependence. And the first global declaration of interdependence has come from China. And, the, and the, the, this, this initiative is a real declaration of interdependence. We have to work all together. And I, I would uh, just say to finish, it is good for us not to think that all the initiatives always come from the Western world. This time, it comes from the Orient, and I have always told my children, you have to get oriented. What does it mean to get oriented? To look at the Orient. So let's look at the Orient, and we will go on the right way. Thank you.
Well, actually, I'm going to be very mean to the remaining panelists, but I think I want to end on what you've said because it's an upbeat note and it's a good note to end on. I hope, apologies to the two of you, but I think we really need to end on the declaration of interdependence. And I think this should be the buzzword coming out of this forum. This is what we are. This is who we are, and this is where we go forward. Just a final word of thanks to all the panelists here, so please join me in thanking them. <laughs> Commissioner, thank you very much for finding the time to come here and to really make some very thought-provoking comments about how we need to take this conversation forward. Thank you also very much to the Chinese Mission to the EU for uh, cooperating with us and of course to our f wonderful partners, the CIRD and the CPDA, Dr. Shifulin here, who has been a mover and a shaker and a driver for taking our cooperation uh, forward. So thank you very much indeed and I'd like to say thank you to all of you for your questions and your, uh, and your investigation and your curiosity about this wonderful relationship. Thank you.